Amen. While our children are heading out to Children's Church, I invite you, if you would, and you have a Bible with you, you can take it out, turn it on, and join me, if you will, in the book of Galatians. Galatians is there in your New Testament, uh, and we are going to be finishing out chapter 2 together this morning. If you're a guest with us, I just want to take a moment and just say a special welcome to you. My name is Will. I get the privilege to serve as pastor here, and uh, I'm excited that you're with us. Hopefully on your way in, you should have gotten maybe a gift bag that has a, a Connect card in that. We would love for you to fill that out, leave it in your seat when you leave, that we might know how we can better connect with you in ministry. We have been together in a series that we have been walking through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to a group of churches in the region of, uh, of Galatia. It's perhaps the oldest New Testament book, the very first letter that Paul wrote uh, and the original uh, scripture, if you will, in the New Testament. And we're going to get to the place finally now in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul is going to introduce us to the content of this gospel that he has been defending so well. And so I actually am going to uh, break my normal pattern this morning a little bit, and I'm going to start our time together by reading these verses. So if you have your Bibles, I pray that you would look at, or ask that you would look at them with me as we are going to pick up in verse 11 of chapter 2 and read down through the end of the chapter this morning. Paul picks up and he says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are not Jews by birth and not Gentiles, or we are, ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that right here, right now, you would take hold of each and every one of our hearts, mine first and foremost, our minds, our spirits, that we might bring you glory and honor, eliminate every distraction, expose every sin. Search us, O oh Lord, and know our hearts See if there be any wicked way in us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that in exposing it, you would lead us to the throne of grace, that we might bask in the glory and the wonder of everything that Jesus Christ has done, that we might bring him glory and honor in all that we do. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. When we come to Scripture, Scripture is meant to be both kind of a mirror and a window, if you will. It's a mirror to show a reflection of our hearts. 
to show us who we really are. Not who we think we are, but who we really are. And at the same time, it's meant to be a window that allows us to look beyond uh, the world that we can see that we might behold out of the Word of God the nature of God Himself, that we might see God, if you will, in a sense, that we might understand God, and then we might respond to God as He deserves, and that is worship. And that really and truthfully is the goal of every single time that I stand here and preach. It's to uh, look into the Word of God, to expose our faults and our failures, our fallen condition, if you will, of our hearts and the world that's around us, and then look at Scripture and allow Scripture to expose God and His power and His might and His majesty, particularly through Jesus Christ, because Jesus, according to Luke 24, says that all Scripture is ultimately about Him and what He has done for us and an exposing of the gospel and our need for the gospel. And in seeing ourselves for who we are, seeing God for who He is, and being moved towards the gospel to surrender in humility, we worship God as a response. That's what is supposed to distinguish the preaching experience from the teaching experience, is preaching is aimed for worship. Teaching is aimed for understanding. And so when I try to preach, I want to, to, uh, to study the God's Word in such a way that I can see or find that fallen condition that is being exposed in God's Word so that we might find how Jesus is then the answer to what is broken inside of us. Sometimes that can be really difficult in the passage of Scripture, and I have to prayerfully seek, God, what is this exposing in my heart and in our hearts? Sometimes, like today, it's really easy. Because it's just right there on the pages of Scripture. What's the problem in this passage of Scripture? One word, hypocrisy. Right? Paul, at this point in the letter to the Galatians, in the first two chapters, we've outlined kind of a broad outline of the book, just to bring you up, that the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul is defending, if you will, the authority of his gospel. He's declared that the source of his gospel is not any man, but is God himself. And it resulted in a transformation of his life, if you'll remember. And then there is the, the further proof that when Paul, who was not trained by the original apostles, came to the Jerusalem church, we saw this last week, that they added nothing to his gospel, to the content of the message that he preached. And so when you've got these two separate traditions, if you will, that come together and they're both identical, that's further evidence that this thing is from God. And we saw last week the tendency that we have sometimes to build barriers around our fellowship in the gospel and the need that we have to focus on gospel issues first and foremost, and that's the standard of our fellowship. Well, Paul immediately rolls right into these verses, and we see what happens when someone builds a barrier around the fellowship of Christians that isn't gospel-centered. It leads to division. It leads to a breakdown of the fellowship. And so Paul confronts Peter himself with his hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of those who followed him, even Barnabas. Paul's partner in ministry to these churches in Galatia who would have known exactly who Barnabas was, even the faithful brother Barnabas was tempted and drawn away into hypocrisy because of the behavior of Peter and other believers. Their hypocrisy is around this standard that is not essential to the gospel, which is the issue of table fellowship in the Jewish community. That there were certain food rules and regulations that people had to follow. 
And in this culture, it's not just as simple as, hey, I want to get to know you, so let's have a meal together. In this culture, in this day and age, if you invited someone to your table, that was an inviting them into an intimate fellowship and relationship, which is why the Pharisees condemned Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. So it's a big deal that when Peter comes to Antioch, he is sharing a table fellowship with Gentile Christians. But then all of a sudden, these people show up from Jerusalem and from James, and all of a sudden, that breaks things down. And it leads Peter into hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is essentially this. It's living out of alignment with what you declare to believe. It's, as Paul points out in verse 14, it is any behavior that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. Maybe you've heard it said, and the excuse, it's kind of a a pat excuse at this particular point of why people don't want to be part of a church, is because the church is full of hypocrites. Have you all heard that talked about before, said before? Maybe you've had somebody say it to you directly, that the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites, and so I don't want to be a part of that community. Well, the answer, the, the truth of the matter is, yeah, that's true. Because the reality is every single one of us is prone to live out of step with the very truth that we proclaim. Every sin that we commit in our lives is a departure from the gospel. But ultimately, what I think a lot of people say or mean when they say that the church is full of hypocrisy is a very specific understanding of hypocrisy. An understanding of hypocrisy that goes all the way back to the 1990s to that great old DC talk record, Jesus Freaks. And I think it was song track number four on the, top, on the, the track Jesus Freak that opened with this phrase, and it's ingrained into my mind. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That's the idea of hypocrisy that most people take on when they think about hypocrisy. It's I declare myself to be holier than thou, but I live out of step with that standard of behavior. But there's another side of hypocrisy. It's not just this holier than thou mentality. There is this flip side that we see, I think, on display in Peter's behavior where Peter declares something to be true which is the gospel, because Paul does not claim that Peter is like these other guys who are false brethren who've snuck into the church. He believes that Peter really, truly understands the gospel, but he is living out of step with the gospel in his actions. And that is a whole different age and a way of showing hypocrisy. See, what Peter was doing is though he knew that God had welcomed the Gentiles into the fellowship. Go back to Acts chapter 10, where Peter had his encounter with God, where God declared to him three separate times, don't you dare say something is unclean that I have said is clean. And then Peter was the first to preach in a Gentile's home, and we saw Cornelius and his entire family saved baptized by the Holy Spirit, baptized in water baptism immediately following, and that is the the breaking open of the gospel among the Gentiles. Peter was instrumental to that. He knows that God has moved beyond just the Jewish community into the entire world. 
But now, because of potentially social pressure, we don't understand exactly what it was that led Peter to somehow be intimidated by this group that supposedly came from James. Now, to be clear, James didn't send them to, to, to encourage this or, or cause Peter to stumble. If you go and you look at Acts chapter 15, James and the Jerusalem church issue their final statement on these matters. And James says, there are certain brothers that went out from us, but they didn't actually have our authority. That, I believe, is most likely what's going on here, is these folks have shown up from Jerusalem and they brought some message that has somehow managed to intimidate Peter. So Peter now withdraws from his fellowship with the Gentile believers. And that is powerfully significant because we can just as easily preach a gospel with the way that we live and the things that we do as we can with what we say. And though Peter would speak the words, we are all brought to God through Jesus Christ and welcomed at Jesus Christ and at the foot of the cross. His actions are now saying, you can't really be a part of this unless you do X, Y, Z. His actions are saying one thing. His words are saying another. And the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, that is the heart of hypocrisy. And the fruit of hypocrisy is that it, one, damages the integrity of the gospel, and two, damages the integrity of the gospel community, the church, as it creates division among us over secondary and tertiary issues. The heart of hypocrisy is living a different gospel than the one that we claim to believe. Paul says that much in verses 15 and 16. He includes Paul or Peter. We are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have believed in Christ. Paul says, Peter, we're on the same page here. We have believed this message together. But Peter has now misstepped. And I think that that holds a really important warning for you and for me. That we are all prone to wander. We are all prone. Listen, if Peter can step away, fall away with all of his, his important position within the church, if even Peter can struggle in this area, then you and I can. Any preacher can. Anyone can be prone to hypocrisy, to living a different gospel than the one we would claim to believe. And so we must guard our hearts, and beyond that, we must guard one another, which is exactly what happens in these verses. As Paul sees the problem of Peter's hypocrisy and Barnabas and these others, Paul, because of his love for them, will not leave them there. And so, as a brother in Christ, he steps in to do something about it. And so we see the place of accountability here. As Paul now addresses Peter and those that are with Peter publicly, when he saw that their conduct was not in, the tr in step with the truth of the gospel, he was compelled by love to speak up. And he's going to clarify this and reiterate this later, if you will, in chapter 6, verse 1, as he talks about the need for accountability between brothers in Christ. Because in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We are all responsible in some way to guard one another, 
That's the place of accountability. One another, living with one another, identifying the ways that you and I might fall short because we're not meant to live this life alone. But that language, as we'll see when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, is not this place of, aha, I got you. I see you. I'm going to now drag you out and your sin out into the light of day. But instead, that word that, they, that someone is caught in the gospel is someone who is easily tripped up, someone who is ensnared, someone who is grasped by sin, because sin is our enemy. But since we're not meant to live this life alone, we need to hold one another accountable. We must guard ourselves, though, from abusing our accountability. There's a book in my heart that I want to write. I don't know when or if it will ever be written. But the title of the book is 39 Lashes, searching for a biblical picture of accountability. Because I don't know about you, but I've been in accountability relationships that were not healing, but felt like I was strapped to the whipping post, getting beaten again and again and again and again, abandoned, forsaken. And we need a biblical picture of accountability. Because it's easy for us to abuse accountability, but Paul's example in these verses shows us some good picture of what it is and how we should go about holding one another accountable. First, as Paul sees this, Paul addresses this, man, this, uh, this problem in the most appropriate venue or most appropriate sphere. See, Peter's straying from the gospel was a public straying from the gospel, and it was something that was affecting the entire fellowship. And there were other leaders within the church who were following after Peter, and so the fellowship of the church was breaking down, and people were struggling. And so what does Paul do? Since it is a public sin, Paul addresses it publicly. We talked last week about the fact that there is a, an irreducible minimum of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our responsibility to guard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where and when we find others who are teaching gospels that are less than that or who are adding to it, it is our responsibility as believers to safeguard that, to hold one another accountable, to address that, to identify that and not be ashamed or afraid to address even our leaders. Can you imagine how intimidating it would have been for Paul the one who is at one time persecuting the church, to now publicly stand up and correct Peter, the one that Jesus said, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church because of his first confession of Jesus is the Messiah. And nevertheless, Paul, because of the power and the truth of the gospel, is compelled to hold even Peter accountable. And so we must be willing as brothers and sisters to step into that place and approach one another in love, but in an affirmation of the truth of the gospel. And there are some pastors, though, I believe, who have abused this type of accountability. I hear horror stories all the time of pastors who've had the audacity in the middle of a Sunday morning sermon to name a church member and call them out for their sin private sins. And there's a lot of damage that has been done to people's lives because of an abuse of this principle of holding one another accountable. A rule of thumb, brothers and sisters, is that the sphere of repentance should only be as large as the sphere of the offense. 
where and when I misspeak or am offensive or am, am wrong from this platform, I am honor-bound and Scripture-bound to publicly repent, which I have done before. Where there's private sin in our lives, there is a place where we are to address that privately unless it gets to the point, Matthew chapter 18, where we have to bring it publicly because of a refusal to repent. So Paul addresses this in the most appropriate sphere, in the most appropriate manner. But the other thing is that Paul rebukes Peter not with standards that would heap shame upon Peter, but with the truth of the gospel itself. Paul's message to Peter is not that Peter needed to act better, do better, be better. Instead, his rebuke to Peter is, Peter, you need to believe better. Because every breakdown when it comes to hypocrisy is ultimately a failure to fully embrace and believe the gospel. To be in love with Jesus and to recognize what he has done. And so as Paul comes to Peter, Paul comes to Peter with the content of the gospel. With the truth claims of the gospel. He reminds Peter what it is that Peter actually believes and shows him the disconnect between his internal belief and his external behavior. And that is what you and I need when it comes to accountability. It's not someone who comes in and heaps shame upon shame and beats us over the head with a standard of behaviors, but it's instead someone who comes to us and reminds us of the beauty of the gospel and asks us, will you now believe this? And let this transform your heart, and, and a transformed heart will change your behavior. That's the love that compels us is to come back to and remind us of the truth and the beauty and the power and the priority of the gospel. The, the power of accountability is ultimately rooted in the gospel. Paul doesn't come to Peter as an authority in the church to correct him. Paul comes simply based upon the content of the gospel. Just as the last week we said that Paul was not called to Jerusalem. He didn't go to Jerusalem because the church summoned him. Instead, he went because of God's authority over him to send him. In the same way, Paul doesn't come to Peter as the bishop or the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Antioch and say, because of my authority, I'm going to confront you. No, Paul simply comes to him based upon the gospel. That's the source of his authority, to confront Peter. And so as he confronts Peter, he then flows almost seamlessly right into a recitation of the content of his gospel. And he brings the gospel to the place of first priority. At this point, it's not about Peter's failures and his behaviors or anything else. Instead, Paul elevates the priority of the gospel by reminding you and me. And this serves, if you will, as the conclusion to the first two chapters and the transition into chapters 3 and 4 where Paul is going to build upon what he explains here as he introduces the gospel. Paul hammers home the heart of the gospel that he proclaimed in verses 15 and 16. Particularly 16, we know that a person is not justified by works. Three times in this one verse, Paul hammers that truth home. We're not justified by works. We believe in Jesus Christ in order to be justified in faith and not by works because by works of the law, no one is justified. 
Now, there's a little bit that we need to kind of understand because these words that are here, justified and faith and works of the law, those are words that are going to dominate the rest of the book. And so there's kind of got to be a little bit of moment where we've got to understand, okay, what is Paul talking about here? What does Paul mean that we are justified? Justification, the term justified, comes from the legal realm. When a judge would declare someone not guilty, based upon the evidence that was laid before him, that person was declared righteous. Right? So this is the verb form of the noun righteous. I do righteous, I am righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It's oftentimes explained this way. It's taking the word justified and says, and, and twists it so that we kind of understand. It is just as if I had never sinned. Because of not anything that I have done, as Paul says, makes clear here. It's not based on any works of the law. It's not based on any effort of humanity. It is simply because of a statement that has been made by God. Not guilty. As if my record of sin never existed. And so God treats me just as if I had never sinned. Everything that is Christ's is mine. Everything that Christ has done is counted for me. And you see, this is what contradicts that holier-than-thou mentality. See, when we adopt that form of hypocrisy that says, I'm living a life and a standard and I'm okay with God because I am doing the right things, I'm checking off the right boxes, and we begin living in this, this propensity to look down on other people, where we're the, I, I, I was in the church crowd in high school, and though we thought that we were open and everything else, our behavior, our attitudes, the way that we interacted with other people oftentimes sent a message to them that said, you're not good enough to be with us. Because you don't do X, Y, Z. You're not at church on Wednesday nights. You're not there on Sunday morning. You're not serving in this way. You're not doing that. And it's this holier-than-thou group that walks around. But what the gospel of Jesus Christ does is it bursts that bubble wide open and it just explodes all over the place. Because the truth of the matter is, there is no such thing as a record of righteousness that makes us okay with God. My standard of righteousness and the things that I do in this life are not somehow going to make God more happy with me or pleased with me. It's not by the things that I've done. It's not by my works of the law. The law. Instead, it, despite of my best efforts, my record of good deeds ultimately before the Lord is worthless. And that's what Paul seems to communicate in these verses as he talks about himself and Peter. We were Jews. The recipients of all of the good promises and the covenant promises of God. Paul grew up learning that the word of the, the law of God was not some, some weight around his neck, but according to Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, the longest psalm and the longest chapter, if you will, in all of Scripture, the law of the Lord is beautiful. It's like honey on the lips, it's like precious gold and sweet silver. And adherence to that law was the ways of life. Paul loved the law of God. And now all of a sudden, because of his, his introduction to and revelation of Jesus Christ, all of that which he once thought was the epitome of holiness and beauty and the outworking of love for God, he now sees it is a mountain that goes nowhere. And all of his best efforts are weak 
But there's something greater than that. That though his best efforts are failures, Jesus Christ's efforts set him free. And so he has now been set free from this pressure in his own self or his own life to live according to a set of rules and religious rituals. He has been freed from the law because of what Jesus Christ has done for him. And that is the promise of the gospel for you and for me, is that you have been set free from an adherence to a system of behaviors and rules and rituals and rites and practices because Jesus has accomplished righteousness for you. Period. And your declaration of righteousness is rooted not in what you do or what you don't do and the rules that you do or do not keep. Ultimately, your righteousness is given to you by one thing and one thing alone. Belief in Jesus Christ. Period. Belief in Jesus Christ is the basis of our justification. And so when we believe that Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation and we are justified in Christ and that there is nothing that I can do today that is somehow going to indebt God or make God in my debt, make him love me more or make him love me less, I'm free. I'm free to live my life in faith. Now, the tendency when we understand grace that I am now free because of what Jesus has done for me and set free from any standard or system of rules and behaviors and rituals, etc. The tendency is to sometimes think, well, then I can just do whatever I want. And the truth of the matter is, if that's not the response we get or I get when I preach grace, I haven't preached a biblical view of grace. Because Paul anticipates that response every single time that he, asks, that he talks about grace. Every single time. Look at Romans. Look here in Galatians. When Paul starts preaching about grace and the freedom that we now have in Jesus Christ from a set of rules, Paul immediately anticipates the person who's going to respond and say, well, if that's what the gospel is, that I've been set free from all of those behaviors and rituals and standards and everything else, I can live however I want. That is the standard of Paul's explanation of grace. That grace just results in this licentious lifestyle that I can do whatever I want because I am fully forgiven and set free. But that is the other side of the coin of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy on the one side is living this holier-than-thou lifestyle. Hypocrisy on the other side is to proclaim my faith in Jesus Christ who is holy and perfect and righteous and everything else and then doing whatever I want. Saying that I believe one thing, but living in a way that, that blows that out of the water. Living in sin. And so Paul goes on in verses 17 and beyond to say, listen, what happens if I then begin to sin? He's most directly addressing the challenge of his opponents and the argument that was made to convince Peter and the others to break their, fe their fellowship. You see, it seems like the accusation was, hey, listen, Peter, you're taking your freedom too far. So in taking your freedom too far, you've been, yes, we've been set free in Jesus. Jesus has justified us, everything else. But now you're turning your back on all of the standards of righteousness of the Old Testament. You're taking your freedom too far, Peter. 
And so Peter, being intimidated by that, begins to, to pull back and break down the fellowship. Because they're claiming that now, Peter, because you're taking your freedom too far, you're actually making Jesus an approver of your sin. That's not what Paul, but Paul corrects that with the part of the gospel that says Jesus has forgiven us and set us free, but now, because I have died to myself, Jesus lives in me. Right? Paul says it's not possible for Jesus to be a servant of sin. Because if I rebuild the structures of sin, who is responsible for that? Me and me alone. Period. Jesus doesn't build structures of sin in our lives. Instead, he set us free. And now, those who have been set free from Jesus Christ, we have been crucified with Christ. Such that it is no longer I who live, but Jesus who now lives in me. It is both and. He has set me free from the standard... And he now indwells me by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit such that I am now able, freed to, live the standards of God because of Christ's presence and power in me. So here's the thing that what Paul gets to, when I fail, Jesus' sacrifice is there for me. And he gets the glory for my forgiveness. And now that I'm in Jesus Christ, where and when I'm able to, or I do in fact live a life of righteousness, it's not because of me, it's because of Christ in me, Jesus gets the glory. Jesus gets the glory for my forgiveness when I fail. Jesus gets the glory for my standard of righteousness and when I'm obedient. Jesus gets the glory, period. And so I'm set free from a standard and set free by the power of the presence of Jesus Christ in my life because of what he's done on the cross. Because here's the thing. If I could earn God's favor by living a life of righteousness, or if I could please God by adhering to a standard of righteousness, then why did Jesus have to show up at all? He's unnecessary if I can do anything in my own strength. Instead, it's all about Jesus. So as we are prone to move towards hypocrisy, the question for you and for me is, have you been crucified with Christ? Has Jesus taken on for you personally the punishment that you deserve by bearing your place in front of a righteous and holy God because you put your faith and your trust in him? Because that is the promise of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, who is perfect and righteous and spotless in all of his ways, came and died in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve and I deserve because of our sins. And then Jesus was raised to new life so that we might live a life of promise and faith in the gospel. We are saved by faith, and Paul says right here that we now live by faith. Verse 20. Are you living by faith? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ such that you are fully surrendered to him? I kind of think just in conclusion, think about it this way. If you've, if you've ever been rafting, or maybe you've ever just, you've gone on one of the lazy rivers at one of those water parks. There's a point at which if you really want to truly experience just the relaxing nature of that lazy river, you have to do what? You have to relax and lay back in and trust in the current of the stream. 
That's the one side where the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free from all of our efforts. There are a lot of people, I believe, who are Christians but who have not yet fully surrendered such that they're still trying to control the boat or worse even, they're standing maybe ankle deep or knee deep in the shallows and they have not gotten out into the deep of the gospel because that's the place where the current actually flows with power and with strength and it requires us to be faithful and to live in faith and surrender. On the flip side of it though, on the one hand, there's the surrendering and recognizing and giving our trusting in Jesus to do for this. That's laying back in the stream. But on the other hand, sometimes our tendency is when we floated in that a little ways and we end up maybe at our destination downstream or wherever we are, we take the credit for getting ourselves there. When in reality, it's the current that took us. That's the other side of hypocrisy. But it's instead what the gospel's call is for you and I to surrender, to lay back and to trust in Jesus, to do everything in us that is necessary, and to take us all the way to where we need to be. So my question to you this morning is, where might you be out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where in your life might you be not living, first and foremost, fully surrendered to him, Allowing his life to flow out of you. How are you refusing to fully rest in Jesus and you're still there kind of in your float or in your boat trying to to get yourself and push yourself and swim yourself and speed yourself up and everything else instead of just resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Two, are you prone to hog the limelight by living a holier-than-thou lifestyle? where you might intentionally, unintentionally, habitually consider certain groups of people or certain individuals as somehow less than lovable before God than you. Because you're in church, because you read your Bible, because you pray, because you tithe, because whatever standard there may be, how are you tending to take credit for what only Jesus Christ can claim? And how can you instead come back to the truth of the gospel that everything is done by Jesus for your good and for his glory alone? I invite you, if you would take a moment, bow your heads and close your eyes and go before the Lord in prayer and ask him that very question, God, where am I out of step with the gospel in my life? Where do I need to surrender Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to not be better, but believe better? And I'll come back and close this in a moment.